so we are counting down with, with these four Sundays. We have two more left, uh, Joy and Love. And then we are going to gather on Christmas Eve and, and just celebrate this, this whole Advent season. And Advent messages are different in that I can't tell you where exactly in advance we're going to be going. I don't have a single passage for you to, to open your Bible to and go to. But this morning, we're going to walk through a lot of parts of the Bible looking at the word peace and how it is used. First, we're going to look at the initial peace that was in the world and then how it got broken. So we're going to call the first part, we're going to look at peace in the beginning. Next, we're going to look at the period of peace in Jerusalem. The period of peace in Jerusalem. And then the last thing we're going to look at is peace for us now and when Christ comes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for this time um, that we can just stop and reflect on this beautiful gift that you've given us promised to us from very early in Genesis and culminating in Revelation. Holy Spirit, just be with us today. Come down and just calm our hearts, clear our minds, and help us to focus on you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, before we start talking, though, it's good to always get a, a definition of what you're going to talk about. So, peace. The Bible has a lot to say about it. it. It appears 329 times in the Bible. Some translations say more, but we're going to go with 329. Uh, the highest occurrence, of course, is in Isaiah. It's 30 times in the book of Isaiah. Uh, peace is also listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. We see that in Galatians 5.22. And then, looking through the Lexham Bible Dictionary, they define peace in a couple of ways. We're going to look at four of them. Peace commonly relates to a relationship of love and loyalty with God and one another. So peace commonly relates to a relationship of love and loyalty with God and one another. In the Old Testament, peace carried the fundamental meaning of welfare, prosperity, or wholeness, as well as the absence of hostility. In fact, the Old Testament places warfare and peace in direct contrast. So we see that in that famous saying in Ecclesiastics 3.8, there is a time for war and a time for peace. We also see it as a state of tranquility and wholeness and oneness with God and man. Isaiah 26.3 tells us, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It is the name given to Jesus in the verse we've already looked at. Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. And Jesus will rule in peace. Zechariah 9.10 I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. Now peace in the beginning. We see a time of peace, right? In Genesis chapter 2. We aren't given a distinct period of time. We can't count it out in years. But whatever it was, Adam and, and Eve enjoyed this time of peace. They had no enemies. They had no in-laws. They had no predators. They were at peace for however long time that God had them there, right? And they had fellowship with God. That is incredible. Because we see that, because after they sinned in Genesis 3.8, they heard God walking through the garden. His intent was to meet them, obviously a thing he had always done. Um, But them being with sin, they hid. So it was a common occurrence for God to meet with them. Imagine, if you can just imagine what that would be like. This lush place is yours. The animals are no threat. There are probably no such things as insects, because I am sure they came once the curse hit. Adam and Eve had no worries. They had no reason to shop. There was no lines. And a bonus, they had no concern to ever do laundry. I mean, they truly lived in paradise. But they sinned and they lost out. They, like we would have done, they were tricked into sinning and they suffered greatly for it. You see, we live in this sinful world and we're familiar with it, right? We, we know everything about it, we've experienced. But imagine what it must have felt like to them, if you could, leaving paradise and then for the first time after all this time that they lived in the Garden of Eden, they now experienced struggle. They felt pain. They witnessed death of animals. They witnessed the death of their own son and they shed tears for the first time as they mourned their son who was murdered by their other son. And now they were living under threat. They had no peace. And they had come out of a thing that's all they had known. All that is now gone. And then from Adam moving to a period of peace in Jerusalem. From Adam until we get near the end of David's reign, we see no peace at all for God's people during that time. This is an unknown time frame because we don't know how long Adam was in the garden. That's at least several thousand years old. Um, And we see God made a people. He made a people with Abraham. And we know all the situations Abraham went through. So being made God's people and getting that promise that also benefited us didn't mean that he lived without problems. Reading Abraham's story, we see that he lived in fear from the cities and the people that he traveled nearby. He had to go rescue his, his nephew Lot at one point that was kidnapped. And to, even to the point of fear of making his own people swear 
that they would not let Isaac, his son, marry a bride from the people that were around him, that they would go find a bride for him from his own people. Later we see Jacob struggled and wound up for a short time with some peace, living in Egypt, but quickly God's people became the servants until God brought Moses in to bring them out of Egypt, but that was not a peaceful time either. And all we read about is conflict and death until David seeks to build God a house for his people to worship in. God tells him, David, you're not going to be the one to build me a house. You are a man of war and blood is on your hands. But your son Solomon will. And we know Solomon's name means peace. So was it purely peaceful for Solomon during his whole entire reign? No. In the beginning, he dealt with the competition of relatives. He had to make a purge of some other people. But then, then he experienced peace. 1 Kings 4 says, 421 says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates and the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. 1 Kings 4.25, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And then 1 Chronicles 22.18 says, Is not the Lord your God with you, and has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. But wait, we have bad Solomon too. It didn't last forever. It wasn't perfect. In fact, this approximately 40 years of peace um, compared to thousands of years of no peace is no comparison at all, really. Solomon, this is the part that always gets me, was once considered the wisest man in all the earth. But he sinned like his father David had. But he did not recover and repent like his father did. He stayed evil after even hearing the punishment that God would deliver. 1 Kings 4, 9-13 And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him not once but twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. But it didn't last long. His son Rehoboam, heir to the throne, witnessed the kingdom torn in two, in just five years into his reign. 
So Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. Now before Jesus came, we had the first advent. Jerusalem was an occupied city. Who ruled? Not the Israelites. The Romans were in control. With Roman control, you got to wonder, what was Jesus' thought on that? Was he concerned with the Romans being in control? And I, I honestly believe he only talked about it once. In Matthew 22, 19 through 21, the Pharisees wanted to trick Jesus, and they wanted to show the Romans that, hey, this is a rebel. We need to have him ousted and put to death. Um, but he took their trick and basically told them, give the Romans their due. And then he went on teaching about the things of God. So imagine as you read the Gospels and you see all this hatred for Jesus, it's not from the Romans, but it's from God's chosen people. They had the scriptures to offer them a life of peace, but they chose to ignore it and seek their own way of earthly peace, as we see devouring widows and worshiping themselves. Now, could anyone at this time have peace when Rome occupied Jesus, Rome occupied Jerusalem? Well, besides Jesus, who else? So we're going to look, take a look at a couple earthly examples. This was um, before Jesus in human form could speak. So we know that these people truly loved God and lived in a relationship with him. The first person was named Simeon. And we see him in Luke chapter 2, 25 through 32. Luke 2, 25 through 32. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation, consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came, into, he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. We see that, first of all, Simeon had the Holy Spirit. This was a very rare occurrence during this time, uh, that a man would have the Holy Spirit. Um, and he is walking with God, and obviously daily. For a very old man, he still is walking with God. And we see in verse 25 that God had him alive to bear witness to this, that we would see it in the Bible. And this Christ would bring comfort to the world. In verse 29, he calls himself God's servant, and he is in, in, he is in anticipation of departing in peace, or oneness with God, after seeing Jesus, who would bring us salvation. The next is Anna, Luke 2, 36 through 38. This woman had been a widow 
for at least six decades. She had only been married for seven years, and in this passage, she was 84 years old. Marrying age back then for a, for a girl was approximately 12 years old, so we get the idea whatever age she was married, um, that she was a widow before she was 24. And Anna had an understanding of God that we struggle with almost every day in our day. She did not leave the temple. She worshiped God with prayer and fasting. And we read, we read that God had put her in the right place at the right time to see the Lord. After seeing Jesus, she wasn't talking about overpowering the Romans or leading civil, civil disobedience. She began to praise God and speak how, how this child would be the redemption of Israel. John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus called John the Baptist the following. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And we know that John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus when, when they were both in the womb, womb right? Luke 1, 41 and when Elizabeth heard the grinning of Mary, the baby leaped in her room, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John knew who his cousin was. He knew his cousin was the Christ. But I don't believe he fully understood God's plan for this first advent. Um, and then later the second advent. First, God would, Jesus would come as Savior and then judge. I believe he started to get an understanding that Jesus was not going to overcome the world in this first advent when he was arrested and now sitting in jail. John was in a horrid jail, and I guarantee you he was feeling no peace. I'm not sure what he assumed would happen when Jesus would begin his ministry, but it wasn't going, going according to John's plan. So we read what he did. He sent some of his disciples to reach out to Jesus and basically, through everything they said, basically let him know, hey, I'm not in a good place, and I'm ready for you, Jesus, to take charge. Because we see in Matthew 11, 2 through 6, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So remember, John actually knew who his cousin was. But life at this point was getting real hard, real hard. And I fully expect to hear when we get to heaven that the Holy Spirit ministered to John and gave him peace during his time in that jail and during the execution and everything through his experience. Now the disciples, 
One of the most repeated topics we see about the disciples during their three years with Jesus was them arguing about who's the greatest. We see it in Luke 9, 46, Luke 22, 24, and 29, Mark 9, 34. Mark 9, 34 actually says they were silent because they had just had an argument about who was the greatest. And if you've ever had an argument with someone and you're around them, you understand what the silence is. You have just done talking. It got to the point that even the mother of the sons of thunder, James and John, their mother jumped into the conversation. We see that in Matthew 20, 20 through 22. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, him being Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left hand, in your kingdom. The disciples, much like John the Baptist, must have assumed that they were going to have peace very soon because Jesus would rid the land of the Romans, the Romans would be gone, and they would be fellow rulers in Jesus' kingdom. But they, got, they gained a more practical understanding of Jesus' role in this first advent that night in the garden because they all ran with fear and then most of them witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. What they did after that, they hunkered down in the upper room and prayed. And I'm sure they were dealing with a lot of fear, assuming that after the brutal execution of Jesus, they would become next. But God brought about Pentecost Sunday, and the Holy Spirit changed their whole perspective on what their mission was. He bore witness to them about everything Jesus taught them. Their lens became clear, and they fully understand what they were to do. They, they seemed to have no fear and were at peace at their mission, even to the point where they considered it praiseworthy to be beat in the name of Jesus. And this same peace is available for us today. So, number four, peace for us now and when Christ comes again. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness reasonableness I'm just going to mess that word up be known to everyone the Lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus I think it's interesting as I was reading this passage um, when we think of it, it's usually broken down into individual verses, right? It's rarely all said together. Uh, we use verse 4 in a song. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Clap, clap. 
I mean, that's been around forever. And then six, we always use as encouragement, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your prayers, let your requests be made known to God. And for this message, I pulled up verse 7 as a reference, but I ran ahead and then wanted to talk about all of them. Because when you put it all together, it makes sense in our path to sanctification and seeking peace. If peace is oneness with God, we should rejoice, right? And rejoice always as we move closer to the moment and the days we're going to spend with him forever. Verse 5 reasonableness also can be said as our can also be said as our gentleness so let everyone know you are gentle and you always rejoice in the lord verse 6 verse 6 reminds us that if we're rejoicing in the lord and he is the one that we fully trust then we're to try big word here try to stop being anxious about a situation or wonder what is going to happen or what we need to do. Instead, we are to take our prayers to God and make known to Him or petition Him with our prayers. How often? Constantly. Am I sure? We don't want to bug God all the time, right? Sure we are. It's God who says right here, bring your request to me constantly. In Luke 18, 6 and 7, Jesus shared a story about a widow and a corrupt judge. And he says this corrupt judge feared no one, but he gave the widow justice because she wouldn't leave him alone. It was only to shut her up. And in 6 it says the Lord said hear what the unrighteous judge says and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night will he delay long over them and what happens verse 7 tells us the peace of God which we cannot comprehend will guard our hearts and our minds as we obey the previous three verses I give advice all day long but let me tell you, when the news hits and you realize that it can negatively affect a loved one, our mind tends to go into action, right? We tend to go into action. We research, we seek advice. It is rare, it is rare that we hit our knees first and seek God and stay that way till we get an answer. It is so hard to read verse 7 and stay in a peaceful mindset. And I'll give you an example. 2017, after 23 years on a contract, we got news we lost. Um, and a new company was coming in in several months. Not a big deal for the employees. So 98% of the people had nothing to worry about. It's that 2%, the bosses, that are no longer going to be picked up. That was me. I was miserable. <laughs> colleague could tell you. Uh, I started looking for other work, and I spent very little time in word and prayer. 
Prayer would have been a better solution. I was miserable. Colleen is a saint because it would be tough to be around me. I mean, I was Mr. Negative, Mr. Negative. Um, I was in disbelief at first, and then there's no way she can console me because I knew I was going to be out of work. You know, and I share with our community group to wake up every day and ask God in your quiet time what he has for you today so you can be ready for it or just be ready for anything. I didn't do that. But God did something amazing. In, in my own strength in finding work, it wasn't working. I was not hearing about any transfers. Um, even though there was work several hours away, it wasn't happening. So I gave up, and I marched over to, the, to where the new company was to go turn in my resume and see what would happen. So I, I was in line. There was a couple other people there that I knew, and they hand their resumes in, and the HR rep would just take down their cell phone number and tell them we'll be in touch. So it was my turn. I walked into the HR rep, gave them my resume. She looked at it, and she said, oh, um, the boss is going to want to talk to you. And she goes, when he gets back, he'll probably give you a call. And right as that came out of her word, I heard the, the voice behind me say, well, I'm back. Who do I need to speak to? So he grabbed me and my resume, read it, and looked at me within seconds. Gosh, I don't know. And he said, hey, can you start right away? I was like, start right away? I, I still have a couple of weeks left. He goes, no, I need you right away because with you we can successfully... successfully moved this contract to the new company. So that was really cool. Best part happens next. I went back to my boss and said, hey, bad news for, for us, but I mean, good news for me. I don't get to stay with the company, but I can start with the new company right away. And he goes, that's fine, as long as you stay with us till the end. And I went, really, you want me to stay even though I'll be helping the new company? He goes, yes. And just so you know, I have a large bonus waiting for you. I've been miserable to be around and the thought of being, at the thought of being unemployed. But now for almost three weeks, I had two jobs. So the thing is, I should have prayed more and obtained that promise of peace instead of allowing myself to live in that bad state for so long. I should have been willing to accept whatever God had gave me, no matter what the result. Because the word, the thing is, though, I had been this, this, this before. Shortly after I got married to Colleen, I had a miserable job. Well, it was miserable bosses. And Colleen and I would pray about it. The last time we prayed, we had got home from church, And we pulled into the garage, we closed the door, well, we turned the engine off and closed the door, and uh, we prayed about it. And I didn't want to go back to work, so I took that Monday off, went to work on Tuesday, and after work, I went to get my timesheet, because it was the old punch clock, and it was gone. Foreman walked up and said, Bill, we'll have to let you go. And I must have shocked him, because I reached out and shook his hand and thanked him, 
and then for about the 100 yards I had to walk to where my truck was parked, I was loudly praising God. So they probably felt they made the right decision because this lunatic was outside yelling. <laughs> but I, I should have been stressed. I mean, here I have to go home, still being a newlywed, and tell my wife who married me, hey, you know what, I'm unemployed. But I didn't. I'm sure she was in shock at first, but she realized this was the answer to prayer. But we still had a mortgage to pay. But you know we were never late. We had some great memories through it all. Great memories. I'd go pick her up after work and do my little side jobs like a courier. We'd drive all through L.A. and drive, drop stuff off. And then we got to see God work and, and put me on the base. It was a time of what should have been great turmoil like I made the last one, but it wasn't. It was a time of peace and trust in God. And this is why he sent Jesus to be our Prince of Peace, that no matter what this world dishes out to us or our loved ones, because in the end, it's all worth it. Because it's like he said in Revelation 24, he will wipe away our tears from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. This is a perfect verse to discuss peace. Because there are a lot of emotions listed in this verse. We see tears being wiped away. We see the promise of death, mourning, crying, and pain becoming no more. So the deep pain from mourning the loss of someone will be gone. But during our lives, we will have these feelings. We will experience the death of Christian loved ones, so we will cry and mourn despite knowing they are singing praise to God in his presence. But to us, it hurts. But in spite of all this pain, tears, and mourning, God gave us his Son as our Savior, and we will be on our way to heaven one glorious day. A couple days ago, this past Friday, Colleen and I were at a funeral of a local pastor, we had gone to church with him and his wife about 34 years ago, and at that time I knew him as an out-of-work college Bible professor. We had heard several years ago that he started preaching at that church as an interim pastor, then recently became the full-time pastor, but we did not know the depth of his life there. Folks, he had issues. He had issues. Um, it's one of those things I always tell you don't believe that soundtrack in your mind that's going through because it always tells you you're worthless and that if someone finds out what you really are they won't like you and it keeps you from being all you can be it tries to discourage you from being obedient to God's commands it's like I call it being a spiritual POW if you give into it what we found out by attending this man's funeral is that he suffered from severe depression and then knowing his past I never never would have guessed it this man took Jesus and his mission for Jesus very seriously his parents paid his tuition to go to Lancaster Baptist College 
Los Angeles Baptist College, now called Masters, and he took it so serious, he got a 4.0 for all four years. And during his grad studies at UCLA, he had learned over 13 languages. We found out he was so prolific in grad school that he would himself make an appointment with his mentors to make sure he was on track to graduate. But he was so far ahead of the curriculum that this is back in the 70s that the mentors told him, you just figure out what you want to study and we'll shape it into a degree for you. With that kind of mind, you could be taken in by pride, right? No. His depression was so severe that later when he was hired by L.A. Baptist College to be a professor, he would attend the mandatory socials. He would see his boss wave at him, then he'd go hide in the coat rack, the coat closet, until the party was over because he felt, who would want to talk to me? The good thing is, long before he became pastor of that church, he learned that he could talk openly and transparently about his depression with the body that he attended with. In fact, a few of them asked him, you know, could you write us at the end of every day? And and by you writing us, tell us everything that went good about the day and what you're feeling about yourself. And you'll see, you'll see that life's worth living. So he promised he did that. One woman who came up and spoke, there was a part of the initial group that received emails from him daily, said she had over 7,000. Others at the funeral shared that they, had the, mm, that they had the same condition as this man, and they learned they could openly talk about it. And he gave them advice and also started sharing emails with them. It was amazing, it was amazing to see how him being faithful, open, and honest brought himself and others peace with the pain of their depression. He served this body well. We will never be perfect, but we have to keep moving and encouraging and receiving encouragement from one another as we minister those who need Christ Jesus. We need to stay in Christ, maintain that peace, be bold, and remember at all times that we have Jesus with us. As we learned in Isaiah 7:14, God gave us a sign. And whereas Ahaz, the king at that time, shunned it because he had already gone his own way, it is a sign that brings us peace and reminds us that we have God, Emmanuel, with us. And then later in Isaiah, Isaiah 32, 17, the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and the effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. So thank you, Jesus, for making this peace possible on earth and for the future of peace forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for your gift of your Son that will ultimately bring us ultimate peace. We thank you for your word, and that is to be a game plan for us daily, to read, to learn, and to obey. We thank you so much for those around us that can minister to us and who we can minister to. 
we thank you for all of this, that we can be locked in during the season and be willing to share your love. Amen.